Oh, well, so good to see you back again at public meeting in week two. Uh, for those of you who are visual learners, I've got some slides this week. So, straw poll. Would you prefer the lighting in the room to be like this, where you can see more of me and not much of the slides? Or would you prefer to see less of me? <laughs> My dear brother Musa, thank you very much for that. Uh, which one did you turn off to get those slides? Or would you prefer that where you can see more of the slides and I'm sort of in this half darkness? I can still read my notes, fine, that's not a problem. Preference, who prefers the first one? Show of hands, be bold. Who prefers this one? Okay, great. <laughs> Gee, I've really talked up these slides, haven't I? Yeah, okay. So good, to see, so good to see you here at public meeting. We're really glad that you've joined us, particularly if you're in first year and you made it last week and you weren't quite sure whether or not this hour in your week would be available for you because the pressure of university might already be starting to build. And you're thinking, my goodness me, they've given me so much work to do already. It's only the end of week one. Maybe I'll ditch public meeting. We're really glad you did not do that. Can I encourage you that this will be a very valuable hour of your week, every week at public meeting across both this semester and next semester. If this is your first week at public meeting because for whatever reason you just didn't turn up to class last week or you weren't on campus or you couldn't find us, and you're in first year, then a really warm welcome. We're really glad that you're able to be with us. I want to start by asking us this particular question, and that is, how do you feel or how did you feel about starting university? How did you feel or how are you feeling about starting university? I'm going to give you literally 30 seconds. Turn to the person next to you and share. If you don't know them, hopefully you've already done the pray, sit, respond, right? You've done the thing that we talked about last week about welcoming. If you haven't met the person sitting next to you, just say, oh, by the way, this is, I'm so-and-so. Introduce yourself. 30 seconds. How did you feel or how are you feeling about starting uni? Go. Talk to the person next to you. I'll give you 30 seconds. <laughs> There you go, great little exercise for crowd control. You can teach that to your youth group kids, particularly the Sunday school ones, right? And if you're a primary teacher, this is one of the things that they teach you in primary school. So uh, I don't know uh, how that conversation went. Hopefully you were feeling fairly, feeling fairly honest about how you were feeling about starting uni. And I was trying to work out today whether or not we do, uh, like we did last week, we'd share all of the results and things like that, but we'll mix it up a little bit, right? So one of the things that we did is last year, we surveyed a whole lot of first years. And one of the questions we asked them was, how are you feeling, how did you feel about the start of uni? And this is the word cloud that we got, right? Now, here's the question, right? To what extent does to what extent does this word cloud resonate with your own experience, right? So you notice that one of the things that we appreciated here is that generally the overwhelming feelings, I'm feeling really excited about starting uni, right? Although that might not have been your experience in the first couple of weeks of uni, it might not have been your experience so far, but notice that if you're feeling anxious or a bit nervous or maybe even a little bit lonely, then actually that's a fairly typical experience of being in first year. 
I do remember, um, as I've been on the campus for a while, I do remember um, observing a particular first year. Uh, she was uh, dressed as a goth, so she stood out whenever she walked around the campus. And pretty much every week, our paths would cross. I would be heading between um, two particular classes, and she would be sitting eating lunch. And for pretty much the first 18 months when our paths crossed, she was always sitting alone eating lunch. I, I really felt for her, actually. I was so pleased that in, in uh, what would have been her fourth semester at uni, she'd found some other people who she was sitting eating lunch with. And I really felt like going up to her saying, I'm so glad you found some friends. <laughs> but that would have been really, really weird, right? So I didn't do that. But if you're sitting here in the room and you're feeling a little bit anxious about starting uni, or maybe you're feeling a little bit lonely, then actually your experience is fairly typical at the moment of current first years. It does feel like a fairly normal thing to feel both excited but also feel a little bit anxious. Now, your experience of first year, you might be in second or third year, or your experience so far in the last 10 days, might be that you're not really feeling and didn't feel anxious about starting uni. But there may be other things in life that do bring about a heightened sense of feeling anxious and, to some extent, a little bit overwhelmed. So today, as we consider the words of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 6, one of the things we're going to do is consider the extent to which our ambitions and desire of success cause us to worry or feel anxious about our life. So what might Jesus have to say? Here, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Be really very helpful if you've got a copy of the text open in front of you. And once again, we're going to look at the first five verses, verse 19 to 24, and I'll make some observations about that. And then we'll look at section 25 to 34 in the latter part of the talk. Uh, here, once again, notice in these first five verses that was read to us, Jesus outlines the reality of the tension that we often feel and experience between the things of God and the things of the world. And he does so here using three really short illustrations. The first one here is that Jesus identifies the reality of storing up treasure. Now, for most of us, we probably don't think of ourselves storing up treasure because we think treasure is the thing you have to go and find because it's lost, right? So uh, one of... Uh, oh, yeah, I'll share this story, right? Uh, I watch this show on SBS on Thursday nights. It's called The Curse of Oak Island, right? Anyone watch this show? No one wants to admit that they watch this show, right? My adult children pay me out every Thursday night for watching such a dumb show, right? Because it's about a group of treasure hunters who are looking for this treasure on this island in Nova Scotia. They're up to season eight. <laughs> now, that should either say something about their treasure hunting ability or how difficult it is to try and find the treasure, right? See, sometimes when we think of treasure, we think of a thing that was lost in the past that is waiting to be discovered. It's in a locked box or a chest somewhere. And you have to follow some sort of map to try and get there. It's really difficult to find, and it'll take you eight seasons to get there. Jesus is not talking about that sort of treasure. Jesus is just talking about the things that we will store up that we give great value and great worth to. And see, here Jesus identifies the reality that we all, to a lesser or greater extent, we store up things that are valuable. I suspect you do this as well. If you've got a bank account, then you protect your PIN number. You just don't want to let anyone have access to the bank account. Uh, your parents have probably got some fairly confidential documents, like the deeds to their house or their will or things like that, and they don't just leave that on the fridge, on the fridge, fridge magnet for anyone to see, right? It's probably in some secure location. See, Jesus here identifies that it's a good thing to securely store and protect the things that we treasure. But Jesus here creates the tension between where is it that we store those things? Do we store them up on earth or should we be storing them up in heaven? And really the question he's asking us is, which is the more secure, permanent location? 
And on one hand, the answer is obvious, even if we don't appreciate that the answer is obvious. Because we might think, well, I, I think I'd like to be able to get access to the things that I treasure. I want to be able to see them and touch them and know that they're still here because that will give me some security. I'll feel less anxious about that. How do I store up something for me that I can't quite see that's in a place that I can't visit, but I know, but don't yet experience, I will be there one day? Jesus identifies the reality of storing treasure. Secondly, the next question that Jesus raises in these three illustrations is how is it that you navigate living well in the world? See, as we considered last week, this goes to how we see the world, how we map the world, what our worldview is or how we understand it. And Jesus here helps us understand that the health of ourself, holistically actually, and particularly, I want to suggest in a spiritual sense, is directly connected to how we see and understand the world. What are you like, really? Not just when you look in the mirror, but what are you like when you consider who you are as a person? On the inside, how do you understand yourself and your place in the world in relationship to God and in relationship to other people? Do you see the world and yourself through healthy eyes, eyes that bring light and understanding? Or do you see the world through an unhealthy set of eyes and as such your whole body is therefore unhealthy? This, I think, is the tension that Jesus raises for us. And the third thing that he does in this illustration is Jesus reminds us that you can't serve, ultimately, two masters. On one hand, he couldn't be any clearer, could he? What does he say there? He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What Jesus here is not saying, what he's not saying, is that you won't have different masters. I think he's saying, well, you will have different masters. Just that's the reality of living in the world. There'll be lots of different things that you would like to serve, that you would like to worship, that you would like to... But what he's saying is ultimately you will end up loving one and hating the other. With regard to money, which one will you ultimately serve? That's what Jesus is saying. And in raising these three illustrations, I think Jesus identifies the extent to which we sometimes become anxious about the things of the world. So, for example, if you think that treasure is to be stored up in this world, finances, material, possessions and all those sorts of things, I take it you'll be forever anxious that those things will be maybe taken away or destroyed or lost. If your worldview is one where life is only about the material, the things that are outside the body, the things of this world, and these are the only things that give you meaning and purpose in life, then I take it you will be forever anxious forever anxious that you do not have what others have or you do not have enough and you should have more. And thirdly, if you have as the pursuit of money your master, if that in a sense is your ultimate goal in life, if you're willing to serve that master, I take it you'll be forever anxious that you never have enough for such a master always demands more. Do you see how the way in which we understand the world, the way in which we construct our worldview deeply affects not just the way in which we relate to the world and others that are in it, but it also deeply affects how we understand ourselves and ultimately how we feel about ourselves. I think even in our own experience today, 2,000 years after these words, Jesus' warnings still have some resonance to a lesser or greater extent given our circumstances in our own lives. So, for example, do you worry or do you feel anxious that you might not be able to afford to buy a house in Sydney? 
Some of you are sitting saying, no, I don't really think about it at all. Yet others of you, that's already a burden that perhaps your parents have placed upon you, which is one of the reasons why you've done the course that you've done at university, that you will earn a particular income, be in a particular socioeconomic bracket, that you might be able to buy property. Have you not had times when you felt more or less anxious when your bank balance is lower than you thought or expected? Now, I sort of get that as uni students, we're used to having a bank balance under $100. Hmm? But sometimes you laugh, sitting seriously, my bank balance is never under $1,000. I don't know how I'd feel if it went below 100 Do you see how Jesus' words just take immediate resonance in our day-to-day existence? Maybe you've felt anxious or been worried about your current quality of life. That as you've looked at others, you've worried that you're not as successful as them. Or maybe you're feeling a bit anxious that the current standard of living that your parents have been and are providing for you, you will not be able to provide for yourself once you leave university and perhaps move out of home. How do you feel about that? Or maybe you've felt that despite your best efforts at seeking the things of the world, whatever they may be, and that if you're a perfectionist, then it still feels that you're never going to get there. And that raises for you feelings of guilt or frustration and disappointment. So before we address the way in which Jesus helpfully addresses these worries or anxieties, I want to just pause for a couple of minutes and make some reflections about worry, or as sometimes other translations use the word, anxiety. And so you want to, I want to show you here that in Matthew chapter 6, there's a word that's sometimes translated as worry or sometimes translated as anxiety. If you're using the ESV, it's translated as worry, uh, sorry, as anxiety, and if you're using, say, the NIV or the Holman, it's translated as worry. It's the same word in the original text, and that word appears 19 times in the New Testament. But it's worth knowing that it's translated in one of two different ways. The same word is often referred to in the English in two different ways. Firstly, it's sometimes translated as to be anxious, to worry. And what it means here is to be troubled about things, to feel a deep sense of trouble in yourself. But the second way it can be translated is to be worried for, in a good way, to care for, to look out for others. It's the same word. So we need to keep understanding the context into which it's used. You might say, for example, the word can have both negative and positive interpretations. So the two examples that I think I've given you there on the screen, you'll notice there the thing, the word here to be troubled with cares from Matthew 10. I tried not to use Matthew 6, right? Uh, This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. He's saying to the disciples, "Don't, don't be troubled by that. God, through his Holy Spirit, will speak words when you're brought before the law courts and the religious leaders. But then in 1 Corinthians, and it's not chapter 23, because there's no chapter 23 in 1 Corinthians. Um, I think that's probably going to be 1 Corinthians 13, verse 24. Someone can look it up and correct my typo. I'll fix that for tomorrow. 12, thank you. I knew there was a a, a digit. 12, how did I get to 23 from 12? Well, there you go. (laughs) Notice what Paul says here. But God has so composed the body, the gathering of believers giving greater honour to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care. That word could have easily been translated worry or anxiety, because it's the same Greek word, for one another. So in one passage, we're told not to be concerned or anxious, and yet in another passage, the 1 Corinthians 12 passage, we're told to have concerns or be anxious for others. So is being anxious, that feeling of anxiousness or worry, is it a good or a bad thing? I think the difficulty is it's not quite the right question to be asking. I think there will be occasions where being anxious, feeling worried, 
is, if you like, a good thing. But there will be other times where it will not be good for us and our relationships with Jesus and others. And as such, we need to be discerning and apply biblical wisdom into particular situations, rightly understanding what is going on for us in that situation. Now, a really helpful resource for thinking about anxiety from a biblical, theological and practical perspective is a book called When the Noise Won't Stop. The author's name is Paul Grimmond. Uh, I cannot highly, well, I highly commend it to you if you are someone who has and does struggle with anxiety in life. Uh, Paul's uh, spent many years in Christian ministry. He's worked with university students. It's a very honest and theologically rigorous and highly practical book about managing anxiety. Uh, He makes a couple of observations about anxiety, which we don't have time to go into, right? My encouragement is go and read the book. It'll be very helpful. He says this, the Bible unashamedly speaks about us as whole people. In these verses, anguish is a bodily experience, not just a mental one. So he uses the word for anguish to delineate between anxiety and worry. And this description of who we are resonates deeply with our own experience. Panic and anxiety are not just mental experiences, they are physical experiences. And if you've had a panic attack or if you've had an anxiety attack or if you suffer from heightened anxiety, you know that it's not just a thought in your head, it's actually a feeling that sometimes causes the tightening of the chest, the shortness of breath. Perhaps you get a bit sweaty and you you have a a visceral, physical reaction based on the situation that you're in. What Paul is saying here is that anxiety is not just a cognitive thing that can be dealt with. And this is why his book is so very helpful for us. He goes on to say that from a theological and practical perspective, anxiety can be very complex to understand, since from a theological point of view, it's related to the impact that sin has had in the world. And this plays out as we consider the impact of sin on our creation broadly, on our own biology, and particularly with the way in which we understand or map our thoughts, the world. He goes on to say, if anxiety involves a complex relationship between the environment, biology and the mind, then we need to see that people experience anxiety both as sufferers and as sinners. On one hand, anxiety is a biological condition that is outside of our control. It is something that people suffer from. On the other hand, every person who has ever lived is a sinner someone who has rejected God in various ways and who needs forgiveness and grace. From a Christian perspective, it is possible to approach anxiety either through through either of those lenses, but to do so exclusively often misses the whole picture. All he's doing is he's giving us two theological categories and as you look at how you understand anxiety and what's going on for you, this is a very complex picture. Now, I don't have more to say on this, but if you're someone who would like to keep talking about this, very happy for you to have a conversation with me afterwards or sometime this semester. You might like to catch up with one of the staff workers and read the book together. I do want to say that if you are someone who has or continues to be anxious, or if you're someone who suffers episode of ang- episodes of anxiety, then there's great resources to help you. Draw on Paul's great book and consider the biblical and theological implications. Go and take time to see good mental health practitioners. Make an appointment to go and see the psychologists. Either the university provides counselling for students or go and see your GP and you'll get a series of free consultations to help you with your mental health. Draw on these great resources that are being developed for us and have been. And also spend time talking honestly with peers in church or in the EU, people who you trust, who you can share with, who will walk with you on this journey as you navigate what it means to be anxious if you live in, as you live in this world. So let's return to our text and see how Jesus helpfully tries to address the issue for us but in particular in our context 
of our desires to store up things of the world. Uh, Jesus here reminds us of four significant theological truths or key learnings that we see in verses 25 to 34. The first one, there is more to life than just eating and drinking. Uh, It's an unusual thing to say to a university student. There is more to life than just eating and drinking. Uh, Generations ago, university students would basically spend most of their time down at the bar. Uh, The reason why they came to university really was to head to Manning Bar if you're a Sydney University student. And it would often be perceived that the reason why you were a uni student was to eat and drink and enjoy life. I don't think that's the case anymore. But Jesus is reminding us that there is more to life than just eating and drinking. See what he says there in verse 25? I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? See, for lots of people, I think sometimes they find this hard to believe. If they're caught up in a materialistic sense or a scientistic sense, that they just think that the experience of life is all about what you can see, what you can touch, what you can feel and what you can experience, then this might be a difficult thing to understand. But I think Jesus prompts us to consider that while these things are necessities of life, they are not all there is to life. There is so much more than just the clothes that we wear and the food that we eat and the drink that we consume. There's relationships. There's opportunity to enjoy the good things in God's creation. There's opportunity to learn, which is why you're here at university. But at that same point, there's also a significant spiritual dimension to life that we looked at last week, that at times we fail to see and understand. Secondly, we are of more value than the rest of creation. See there what Jesus says in verse 26? Look at the birds of the air, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Now, our experience, as we look out on the world broadly, should show us that the creation provides for itself. Well, actually, God provides for his creation. And as image bearers in that creation, image bearers of God, we are precious among all of creation. So we do need to keep being reminded that in the same way that God provides for all of the creation, scroll through the Instagram feed to see the amazing sunset, that's not just nature, that's the handiwork of God, friends. That's the provision that God has made to the rest of his creation on view in the evening. We are made as image bearers of God. So we need to be reminded that God makes abundant provision for humanity's day-to-day needs. Thirdly, we are so finite in our capacity to control our lives. Verse 27, can any one of you by worrying or by being anxious add a single hour to your life? I think sometimes we often overestimate just how much we can actually control of the things in the world. And being anxious about the things of the world doesn't help us. Jesus says we can't even add an extra hour to our lives. So given your sort of rough expectation of lifespan, out of the 657,000 hours of your life, and you can work out how many you've already lived, you can't even add one by worrying. We are less in control of the things of the world than we think. Fourthly, and finally here, God knows what we need. You see there in verse 31, the comparison here that Jesus makes is between those who would be Jesus' disciples in contrast to those who are not the Gentiles or some translations would say the pagans. See, Jesus here doesn't deny that we require earthly needs, those basic daily necessities of life and food, water and clothing. By the way, an Xbox or a PlayStation is not a basic daily need, right? But Jesus' observation is that many people in the world chase after or crave, is sometimes the word that it's translated as, 
the things of the world. They desire them, in a sense, far more than just having them as basic daily necessities. We need to be reminded here that God knows what we need. We should continue to trust that he will be a good provider for all of our needs. So knowing these things, this sort of theological reflection, where is it that we go wrong? Where's the misstep that we make? Uh, Last week I suggested to you that we sort of buy into a lie and I want to suggest another one. I think this is the lie that sometimes we buy into. It's a lie that the world tells us that we listen to sometimes more clearly or more loudly than Jesus' words. I think the lie goes something like this. Accumulating more and more of the things of this world will help protect me from uncertainty and future anxieties and life will be more successful. So I think we unwittingly buy into that lie that more is better, that our endeavours in the world should be directed towards that end. But more than that, we also consider that the more we obtain, the better insulated we will be from uncertainty and future anxieties. We see this over and over again, don't we? Uh, Perhaps a lack of contentment with an existing house with a view to moving to a bigger house in a nicer suburb. A desire to get a better job, which is really code for I will get paid more so my standard of living can be improved. Uh, The advertising that you'll see, driven by the superannuation funds, that you never have enough, you can never have enough superannuation. So put more in now because that will protect you in the future. Why is it that we get sucked into this way of life? Why is it that we buy this lie? Uh, Three things, I think. Firstly, we fail to keep reminding ourselves on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis that God is in control of the world, that we, we don't need to be, nor can we be. Secondly, we think that trying to please both God and the desire for greater gain is actually compatible. You might say, oh, I've never really actually stopped and thought about that. No, you might not have actually, But I think in your practice, you probably think you can hold those two things together. That I can have God as my master and yet still have great gain of the things of the world. We sort of delude ourselves into thinking that we'll be able to balance both and be better off. If you want um, some tangible experience of this, go and talk to some people who are five to eight years out of university. Maybe you need to go to another congregation in your church and just ask them, what's your Christian life like now compared to what it was like when you are at uni? And just see what they say. Because for often, for many Christians, as soon as they're in the workforce, they try and balance these two things. Thirdly, there's another reason why we get sucked into this way of life. I think sometimes we just look too much at the world and at others around about us, and we take on their worldviews far too easily. See, rather than listening more extensively to God and adopting His map of the world. So I think sometimes, friends, we buy into this particular lie that accumulating more and more of the things of this world will help protect me from uncertainty and future anxieties and my life will be more successful. But Jesus here in Matthew chapter 6 corrects the lie that sometimes we're told by speaking the truth. I think this is the truth that God speaks here through Jesus from Matthew chapter 6. The truth is with God as your master and good and generous provider, you do not need to be anxious for the things of the world. But we need to be clear here. Jesus recognises that people get anxious. He is actually very apt at diagnosing the human condition and recognising that we will feel anxious to a lesser or greater extent about certain things in the world. Similarly, when we do feel anxious about things in life, it is part of being human, actually. But human in the sense 
that we're still not perfect. Sin has had an impact on us because of the environment in which we live and it's deeply affected us because without Jesus, we're fallen human beings. Sin affects us because we live in a world that doesn't function properly and we relate to others who are not perfect people. It may also be an indication that we're listening too much to our own evil desires. So I want to suggest that feeling anxious can also show us that there's something a bit amiss in our life. There's something that's creating a worry, a stress, a difficulty that can then also lead us to feeling more anxious. This emotional response is actually part of being human. So the mature thing to do is to take the time to try and work out what is causing that anxiety, that worry, that we might better understand ourselves and then how to respond in various situations. The next mature thing to do is to keep listening to the words of Jesus, through whom and for whom you and I were created. Jesus loves us. He knows us better than we know ourselves and he cares deeply for us. He shows us the extent to which he cares for us by going to the cross to die and rise again. In Jesus dying and rising again, he provides the means of restoring us back into a perfect relationship with the Father, his Father. And he pours out his Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, into our hearts that we might know God and be changed day by day, week by week into his likeness. The role of the Spirit here in our lives is one means of helping us manage life when we feel that heightened sense of worry or anxiety, particularly about the things of the world. This is what Jesus has done for you, friends. And if this is what Jesus has done for you, then surely he's worth listening to. Surely he's worth following. He's worth obeying. So we do well to heed his words. See what he says there in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. In verse 34, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Friends, our expressions of anxiety may never be completely removed in this life. However, as we spend more time being concerned for the things of God and less time worrying about the things of this world, it may be that we more fully understand why we get anxious and how to manage our anxieties. Uh, Paul Grimman writes uh, here very helpful. Looks like we've lost a slide. There we go, over on the right hand, your right hand side. I couldn't phrase it better, so I just quote him. He says, when we read, do not be anxious about anything, at least in Matthew chapter 6, we're not to read it hearing the voice of the schoolmaster standing over us with an itchy desire to wield the cane, but rather hearing all of the gentleness of the mother sitting with her child who has been woken by a nightmare. See, Jesus' words here, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, are designed to provide comfort, reassurance and hope not to give us a weightier burden that in the midst of feeling anxious pushes us over the edge and breaks us. So for those of us in the room, particularly who tend towards perfectionism, we do well to be reminded of both the tone and expectation with which Jesus speaks these words. He is loving and gently coming alongside us in the midst of our distress and emotional turmoil. He speaks a kind and gentle word to us. Jesus says, it's okay, I'm here, I've got you, don't be anxious. Jesus here urges us to seek his kingdom, 
rather than building a kingdom here on earth of our own making from the things of this world. And the kingdom that we're to seek is to be one of righteousness. These patterns of kingdom-seeking behaviour are going to be countercultural, and at times they will, for disciples of Jesus, be difficult and costly. It may practically mean saying no to that extra shift at work, foregoing more income for the sake of building relationships with family or friends or people who you've met this last 10 days at uni. It may mean saying no to what appears to be a better job after uni. That job might come with less prestige and less pay for the sake of still being able to lead a church Bible study in the evenings because you're not completely trashed by working 80 hours a week. It may mean being more willing to let go of the things of the world, money, clothes, belongings. Don't chase the fast fashion and update your wardrobe as frequently as you have been. That you're in a position to give to others in greater need than you. And in doing so, you will be the means by which God provides for their basic daily needs. See, in these tangible actions, you may also then start to feel a little bit anxious about if you'll have enough. The words of comfort and reassurance that Jesus offer can sometimes be difficult and challenging in the midst of all of the noise of our anxieties. So it is good to be reminded that, yes, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no anxiety. And for some of us, we just can't wait to get there. So until Jesus returns, we do need to keep reminding ourselves that our identity and hence our success and ambition in the world is not actually measured by how much treasure we store up in the world. Jesus reminds us, with God as your master and good and generous provider, you do not need to be anxious for the things of the world. So for us as disciples, one who seek after the concerns of God, here's the tough call, particularly when it comes to money. Who is your master? Is it God? Or is it money? Jesus' words are clear. You can't serve both. Because perhaps one aspect of feeling worried or anxious in life stems from the disconnect between knowing that God is your master, but not yet regularly and consistently putting that truth into practice in your week-to-week activities of life, particularly with how you view and understand money. Can I encourage and urge you that your time with us in the EU, and particularly as a uni student, is a great time to keep wrestling with that and trying to work that out. So let me encourage and urge you this week to remind yourself of the reality that God is your master, that you've been saved by Christ. Hear his words. Take great comfort in them as you seek to live following him. And this week, why not pause each day and be thankful to God for all he has given you in this world? Lift your eyes to him above the concerns of the world and keep remembering his words, that we ought not to be anxious about being ambitious for the things of this world. Someone's going to come and lead us in prayer. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyuneeu.org.